0: This is Jennifer Moss, founder of BabyNames.com and co-host of the Baby Names Podcast. You're listening to From Paper to People. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to episode 403 of From Paper to People, the all too infrequent podcast from Ancestors Alive Genealogy. I'm Carolyn Nealachlan, your hostess with the mostest, My work as a researcher for the New York State Contact Tracing Initiative has lightened a bit, so I'm back in the saddle and ready to provide you with episodes on a wide array of topics. But first, the wait is over. I hereby deliver to you the second half of my January 2021 interview with Michael Twitty, acclaimed author of The Cooking Gene. If you haven't listened to part one yet, please do, we circle back to concepts and quotes in it here in this episode. In this half, we talk about a lot of things. There are a lot of revelations, including about eating foo foo. We talk about Ireland and its food, African nations and their food, how appreciation for the foods of our ancestors doesn't necessarily come easily, let alone get handed down in the blood we discuss one of my favorite topics, the cross-pollination of our ancestors' life experiences and practices in their ancestral lands, and how they carry down to recent and present-day cooking, philosophies, and more. In that, as ever, in his Twitter account and in the other half of this interview, Michael Twitty blows my mind with his observations. I hope that he will do the same for you. We recorded this in the beginning of January of 2021, so some of it may seem a little outdated. I think some of it, however, has proven prophetic thus far. Ultimately, I'll let the conversation do its own work. I don't want to diminish it by overintroduction. With that, I drop you into the middle of our two-part conversation, an interview that took about two and a half hours total, and that I edited only for the ums and the uhs, not for content. I hope that you enjoy everything that comes. I was thinking about something, and that is this. We should never turn away from the possibility and the opportunity for self-enrichment. And one of the ways we can enrich ourselves is by coming to understand who our people were. And that's not just the great joys or the great sorrows, the the victories or the for the, as is. yeah exactly the the daily the daily what does the daily look like knowing the daily um that's an important part of it and and the ultimate point of it i think is again and again in life i come back to this same thing and that is that on the airplane it says put on your own oxygen mask before helping others come on <laughs> and if we're truly to be of service on this planet in some way to anybody, we have to be whole ourselves. We have to find those ways of being whole. And I see a lot of people who don't know who they are. They fundamentally don't know who they are and they don't want to know who they are. And it, it scares me and it makes me sad. And I've always seen genealogy, folklore, family history as ways of getting into that place of filling those holes with, you know, there's maybe there's a great grandma shaped hole and, you know, maybe there's a great uncle shaped hole and things like that. And as I learn about my own people and, you know, there's some horrible stories that I've learned as well as some really cool ones and great ones, it helps to fill me out. And I feel like I... I know things that I need to know. And I can't be, I can't be specific about it because I think it doesn't make sense But um, to other people. But it makes sense to me. And that's what's important in terms of my own functioning in the world. And I find it really unfortunate when people don't want that. One of the really fortunate communications that I had uh, recently about a tree was probably about a year ago. And Mm -hmm. that was, I decided that I was going to work on some recent lynchings. And Mm. the one that I decided to work on was Khalif Browder. Mm. And I worked on his mom's tree and I got it all the way back, got it into some very interesting places, some very interesting stuff going on there. And then I contacted his brother who runs the Khalif Browder Foundation. And I said, I don't know whether you want this information or not. And if you want me to stop, I will. But I'm working on this tree and it is my gift to you and your family. And if you want to, I can do other work too. And when he came back to me, it took a little while before he saw the message, but when he did, he was like, all of my siblings are adopted practically. And we all want to know about our parents and blah, 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 blah. And I mean, he was out just all the way up for it. And it was so fulfilling to me to see that somebody knew the value of all the aspects of where they came from. They valued the woman who raised them, Vanita Browder. Right. And they wanted to know about that tree but also every single one of those other siblings wants to know about their biological parents. Wow. And that is so cool because it's like, yes. And what does that do? It feeds the social justice work that they're doing.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: And it was so cool because I was like, all right, then this has been proven to me once again. Every time this gets proven to me that somebody becomes more whole as a result of knowledge or at least for her having that thirst for knowledge about right. their past, that really gives me hope. And lately, I've been having trouble having hope.
1: Oh, I understand. And that's, and that's really the, the, uh, the real value of this work. You know, I can talk about culinary history all day, Mm -hmm. but sometimes that allows people to vacate from the human stories behind the food. Right. And to sort of have, I guess people, uh, it's really important that people understand that, for me, all of these different parts of self lead into each other. For Mm -hmm. example, um, you know, in Judaism... Judaism, Jewish culture. It's very important to distinguish between the faith and the people. And what I mean by that is that we are a Jewish people, and that is overarching, regardless of connection to or commitment to the faith and its works, the Mitzvot, Mm -hmm. commandments. So, having said that, you know, there's a lot of food and tradition that is emblematic of migrations and journeys and customs and laws. And you know ancient practices and practices that are that are rather new, that connect the ancient to the modern. And for me, being able to do that on the same level in Black, African American, African diaspora, Afro Caribbean, and African culture is extremely profound. Like, why do we have these greens? Why do we have these black-eyed peas? Why do we have these hot flavors? And then, of course, every time I went to West Africa, I did. The other part of the work, which is, you know, you can know about something from a book or from hearing about it or from from your intuition. Then there's another thing about being on the ground and seeing it. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, connecting with the cousins. I mean, that's not just over there; that's over here. I have a cousin who I found out just a couple months ago uh, at the Rona. So we're having a hard time connecting. But I know how to get all of them. He's 15 minutes down the road. And when I was in Benin, I was in the same exact town where our mutual family came from like to know that oh we match you match my dad too you matched you probably matched my grandmother you match his other relative and i can probably pinpoint when our end when our mutual ancestor came to america based on what i know about the trade and by the way where do you live i live in maryland i live in maryland too where do you live i live in, in upper Silver spring where do you live beltsville that's only 15 minutes away from here you know, fascinating. But also just like when I, I mean, not the same, but similar to when I met that um, young woman in Maine and we were just like, we're both descendants of John Lathrop. The weirdness, the weirdness, the joy of it. And there's really no animosity. There was no reason for those, for those people I talked to you about before to kind of have this distance sort of like creepy, sort of like, I don't really know how I'm related to you, even though I, you know you are related to me.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: How could I possibly be related to you? I have so much more respect for people who actually say the words Mm -hmm. and just deal with it. And then there's the other level, which is the ancestry before the American story with all of its issues. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was in Ireland, it was really funny. It was one of the few places where I talked about this rather openly with strangers and they didn't really seem to have an issue. They understood that millions of Irish people left the Island over centuries. And to them, that was just a fact. Mm-hmm. For the English for the English folks, it was a little bit more of a reticence. And I'm just like, wait a minute. You willingly went to the rest of the world and, and invaded or colonized almost every other country on the planet that exists today. You don't <laughs> think you have any connection with these people? <laughs> really? And then, so if I'm going to move beyond those moments of trauma and need for healing and talk to you about the rest of it, we're going to have to be honest with each other. Yeah. All right. I, w- I kind of want to talk to you about food for a second. I know people are like, well, I think was a food guy. All this stuff. You know, the food part is interesting because I guess there's a burden put on you the minute you know that there is a genetic connection and a genealogical connection and a historical connection and cultural connection. When I was in Nigeria, I had a, I had a revelatory moment at the table. So we were in eastern Nigeria, home of the Igbo, and by the way, Um, The Igbo and their related ethnic groups are a huge chunk of southeastern Nigeria going into Cameroon. And they're related. Those folks on the other side of the the river related to the the folks on the other side of the river. Mm -hmm. And I sat down to my first authentic village Nigerian meal of fufu and the okra soup and the jollof rice and all that good, good stuff. And I was trying to prove my authenticity. So I just knew I was gonna love this (laughs) fufu. I knew I was gonna love this stuff. I had a real revelatory moment. So, but see, my first trip to Africa was Senegal, and it's rice country. Mm -hmm. And I'm also several times over a South Carolinian, so for me, eating rice at every meal is not a problem. Mm -hmm. So that that was easy. Now comes fufu. They bring the stuff to the table. It's like kind of wobbly and kind of sticky. And I thought fufu was supposed to be like mashed potatoes. It's not. <laughs> it's not. It's like someone took mashed potatoes, formed it into a ball and put Elmer's glue in it. And, and I said, for some people, they love fufu. Trust me. Most people on, on the trips that I went to, to, to fufu land, they love fufu. They love it. Me... I, I found out that like pounded yeah, pound yam is good because that actually is like mashed potatoes.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, what's the other thing? Oh, omotua. It's the 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 rice. That's kind of like mashed potatoes too. Okay. That's also good. Fufu is meant to be swallowed, not chewed. Okay. So you pick it up with your right hand. You form it into like a little thing. You dip it into the soup. When I say dip into the soup, I mean the... Volcano hot soup, <laughs> and you use uh, you call it like you use almost like a scoop, and then you kind of slurp it down. Mm-mm. <laughs> not my thing It's not my thing, and I felt so embarrassed. It was so bad that one of the one of the people who was in the village who came to sit and eat with us, she was like, "What? You're not going to eat all this good stuff?" She totally grabbed it from me and ate my fufu and hers. <laughs> so and sometimes- bless her for it. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you just can't, you can't do those things. You, and uh, I just thought, I just thought, okay, if I'm, if I'm from here, I should be able to eat this, mm-hmm. but that's not how it worked out. <laughs> so that's, that's my story on that. <laughs>
0: not everything is in the blood. Not everything is hereditary. Not everything shows up automatically. Right. Oh my, my dad has a thing about boiled food. He doesn't like it. And um, I guess he grew up on real bland food and uh, so-so cooking in in Texas and places. And when we went to Ireland, it was before this kind of amazing farm-to-table Irish cuisine had been developed. And so basically, it was pies reheated in the microwave at the pub. And that was the, the kind of food that we were eating, or everything was boiled and he's like i'm not irish i'm like dad okay so you're pretty much like a quarter irish and he's like i'm not irish <laughs> he just he disowned his entire descent because of that food and since i've told him about some of the amazing cooking that i've seen online from from young irish chefs he's like oh okay and so i think he's taking his irishness back yeah movie slowly yes because some of it involves salmon and so he's okay with that so
1: of course but you know i i um you know i learned a lot about a you know a very short time in ireland i, w- I would love to go back but i learned a lot about the different pieces in, in ireland and scotland and england and i it was it's funny sometimes i was just like this is just the greatest food ever And then other times I felt kind of weird about the fact that I couldn't relate to like the smoked fish in Africa and other things Mm -hmm. like African, West African food, especially along the lower coast is really hot Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and it's really smoky and it's really fishy. I mean, people cannot live without the smoked fish and it's not like the Russian or European smoked fish where it's, it's, you know, it's, it's really intense. Mm hmm. It's less hammy, if I can make that equivalent. Yeah. And more like eggplanty fishy birdie. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> and there are literally you come you come off the plane from Africa and everybody has the stinking fish. And that's not a that's not an insult, that's actually what it's called. Really? Stink oh fish. my. Or sm- smoke fish or stink fish. <laughs> and- so strong, and the fish oil is oozing out, and it's just like being on an airplane. Um, one woman, um, one friend of mine, was sitting next to a woman from Ghana on a plane, who decided the best place for the smoke crayfish that she is trying to smuggle back was her bosom. <laughs> so I'm just like, okay, you know what? Nah, I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. And that then, you know, I've really tried to make, you know, make the same food here, but also respect the fact that it's supposed to taste that way because Southern food does. I mean, I've been able to, I've been able to make those very distinct, very powerful links, you know, apparent, but then I was like, well, I feel bad. So what I did was I came up with different ways to really impart the food with the same taste, the similar taste without having it be as fishy.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, um, I'm actually, my cooking has changed quite a bit. You know, I go to the international market a lot. We have a very good one, you know, five minutes from my home, which is, you know, um, and before that, it was one not far, far up the road from the other place I lived. A lot of African um, vegetables and produce there. A lot of uh, the, the the seasonings, uh, the Maggi cubes. They have the, um, the smoked prey fish, but because... My kitchen is kosher. I don't use the smoked crayfish. I use other things.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I have it to show it, but I don't use it. You know, I learn how to make my own like smoky sort of broths and tinctures so that I can make the rice taste the right way or the stew taste the right way. I use a lot of smoked beef and other things. And I use kosher fish sauce. Okay. Yeah. Okay.
0: Well, I can, I can taste all that. I can taste yeah. all that.
1: So that's another plus. You know, and I also have a bunch of tools and mortars and pestles and other things that I use to get physical in the kitchen. I mean, I have to take them out way outside because of where I live. But for me, I learned that African cooking is very physical. You know, it's not just throw some stuff in a pot. It's very, very physical and you use your whole body and, you know, you're grinding the pestle and the way things are cut. It just, it just, I began, I began to think about the way that certain dances, popular dances in America looked. And I was like, these are all from agriculture and cooking. Really? Food. Oh my gosh. So if you think about, if you think about the four tops, for example, uh-huh. they have one particular move where they went from side to side. If you, so what is that? when you sort of break it down, that's the pitching of, Hey, that's the throwing of straw, you know, wow. other, other dance, other dance moves come from the gestures. Um, for example, um, the, the, the position, the position that one takes when one goes and says, stop, you cannot, you arresting of the resting of spirit, mm-hmm. the putting the hand out, mm-hmm. stop in the name of love. Right. Wow. The fact that when you go and you see breakdancing, breakdancing is basically what happens when Mars meets Venus, Mm -hmm. when art meets war. And breakdancing in Capoeira Mm -hmm. in Brazil and voguing in New York and other cities are all ways in which we, we take the body and use it to make war through art. Wow. Without violence. And there's a there's a whole philosophy there, right? Mm-hmm. Behind each thing, behind each of these things, which is really incredible. But you but then you have to then you're like, I don't only have one lifetime <laughs> to figure all this out. Yeah. You know, every time I went to Africa, I saw something different. But also going to Europe also informed. I there's a there was a weird moment when I made the separation between whiteness and Europeanness. Oh, okay. I want to hear this. They're not the same thing. Mm -hmm. Whiteness is an invention of the colonial world that then came. It was then imported back to Europe and the Western mind. Whiteness is not inherently European. So, for example, people, you know, somebody might say, "Oh, they're Italian. They're, They're all white. I'm Italian." I said, that doesn't compute when you come back to Europe. Mm-hmm. You know, those are different ethnicities, different languages, different cultures, albeit with a common thread, you know, that was brought, actually, brought mostly through trade and war than anything else. But being European doesn't make you white. That's true. That's very true.
0: That makes a lot of sense. But by the same token, I have to say that I have been doing a bit of cultural and social and political genealogy myself. And I find something very, very interesting. And it goes back to, of all things, studying all of the players in the Wars of the Roses. Because these are people who, this that's where it starts. Because yes, they are my direct line ancestors. And I find it fascinating to look at direct line ancestors if there's actual history about them to try to understand what they were doing, why they were doing it. It's amazing how many people are very closely related to one another, and yet they kept killing each other, and it was all about power. But when uh-huh. you look at that coming down, and then you look at schism in the church, and you look at all of the, the fact of the danger that one was, A, always in from the crown, right? and I'm thinking of England in particular, and then B, the danger that one was always in from the church... And right. that, see, after schisms, if you were any kind of not a Catholic, because there were all these different ways of not being a Catholic, and ultimately you fled and said, okay, I'm bailing, I'm, I'm going to the, quote, new world, unquote, you took paranoia with you. And when right. you took paranoia with you, you embedded paranoia into the culture that you were founding.
2: Wow. And
0: I have a firm belief That the paranoia of the loss of white prestige, white privilege, and white power is rooted in that puritanical sort of marriage between a faith or an identity and a paranoia about loss of power or somehow some form of amorphous big danger that's right around the corner or right over your shoulder, but you can't see it. Right. And I think that this is the value of looking at history. Now, for me, it started because I found these people in my tree. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. I'm descended to these people. And when I figured this out and I started to look into this, their behaviors were the thing that really hooked me. So it's history and it's psychology. And then on top of that, it becomes religion. And then it becomes voluntary migration in the case of my ancestors and what they did with it right and it's so fascinating because the more you know the less you know definitely as you said before but the more you know the more you want to know because it is it's absolutely an addiction and there is only one lifetime in which to learn it which Which means, okay, I guess I know what I'm doing the rest of my life. You know, I've got another 50 years ahead of me. I've got plenty of time to be doing some work.
1: Amen. And there's a lot of, and there's a lot of that in me right now. Um, I'm actually recommitting to some efforts um, and some projects and partnering up with people so that I have support, hopefully, to get through them. And that is what I'm doing. Is I'm actually going over and codifying what I've learned so that there is a legacy.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I'm trying, I don't know how to do that for my family other than you know, the book that I've written, but in terms of my work on food, I mean, I'm starting with the colonial Chesapeake and really laying it all out there. I mean, it's, to it's not everything, not all knowledge becomes a book or a film or a project, mm-hmm. maybe in some other form one day. Mm-hmm. It's hard to do that and, and get people to back you because it's like a lot of... People have to be really invested. Mm-hmm. But at least creating an archive, creating uh, even a place where my papers can land.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely.
1: Without it being scattered, very important to me. But also just being able to see that happen while my two feet are on this earth <laughs> and give people the direction and all of that is very important to me. I want people to understand that we don't have all the information
2: mm-hmm.
1: every stone has not been turned mm-hmm. uh, for a quick example is i know a young woman in mississippi who was working a graduate student was working on a project and i told her i said you know you're gonna find you're eventually gonna find something for the the okra so she says what about this is a recipe for dried okra and was found in the papers of a woman, a, a, a woman who was a slaveholder.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Her receipt book. And the okra was dried in little circles, thinly cut, and dried in the sun. And I was so excited because I was like, well, see, this is the thing. There's probably thousands of these out there. Mm-hmm. That people didn't care to look at. But they're somehow preserved in some archive. And we need to talk about archives in a moment. Remind me to talk about archives and social justice and racism in a moment. Okay. Um, but I was just like, this shows you that we don't have all, all of the facts. There's so many different things that are there for us to find. And we just haven't found them yet. But also, the lens of the person doing the research matters. Cause I could look at that and go, oh, wow, dried okra, like in Africa, when they take the okra and cut it small during the wet season, but dry it thin so that when you cook it in soup during the um, dry season, it's good. Mm-hmm. Same thing in America. You grow the okra when it's summer, when it's in a hot, and it's available, and it's p- prolific. But then it's winter, and you want to o- want okra in the soup, you have to cut it up, small, dry it, and then it reconstitutes easier in water when you make a, a soup that sits on an open hearth all day
2: mm-hmm
1: that's the other part of my work so the th- when I was in uh, South Carolina at the archives in Columbia I experienced a, a moment of deep racism and that was that we we didn't know that we couldn't take pictures of some they, they always wanted you to like pay for the copy service and first of all the camera made it much easier to see some things than a, a xerox would have and then I told the man. Uh, it was this is in Columbia, South Carolina. I told the man. I said, "But I've, you know, I've come a long way, and these are my ancestors, and they were slaves." And this this fool looked at me and said, "Well, lots of people travel a long way and do the, the, the But the rules are the the the. So I've been I've been trying to advocate that archivists that we that at least the only, at least give us the reparations of being able to take pictures of our ancestors' records. Yeah. No charges for that. If I if I said that Germany charged somebody for some Holocaust records, people be up in people be in uproar. Mm-hmm. I was so furious, and they tried to embarrass and humiliate us too. You know, I just it was just like, and there is a lot
0: of that out there. I mean, there's something to be said for white researchers using their whiteness as a protective shield to procure information and records for Black clientele for free, reparational work. Because if I go into a place and I ask for a record and I come out and I've got the record and you go into that same place 10 minutes later and you ask for that record, you might be asked to leave a deposit of your credit card or you might be refused the record altogether. I've said this before on a podcast, but I've been told this by people that this has happened to them. Right. And, you know, that's why, I mean, with white listeners, this is what we're talking about. When we're talking about reparational work, whatever it is, however you partner with other people, the records that you find, don't keep them on lock. Mm -hmm. Make whatever you find available, you know? And I mean, I understand copyright. I'm not saying break copyright, but I am saying that whatever you do, make sure that people can get hold of the things that you have and do everything that you can to democratize that, you yes. know, yes. because it's not, it's, it's not democratized right now in so many ways. Thinking about this Corona hiatus, whatever you want to call it, you right. normally do some travel. Oh, um, how has this time away from, a normal schedule and from a plan that I'm sure you had in place, how has that changed what you're doing? And do you know yet what that leads to for once we are done with all of this, all of this, at least inability to travel?
1: Um, I had to do an article for travel and leisure. And that was really uh, nerve wracking mm-hmm. because I was in North Carolina, South Carolina and Georgia, and there was a lot of non-face mask wearing. mm okay so and i mean people just being you know the sign says you can't you have to enter with a face master but now i need no fast mask. and um that was rough i do love the train (laughs) a lot i miss i miss riding the train um Mm -hmm. deep south Mm
0: -hmm. what is it that you miss about that
1: um there's something that puts me in the shoes of my grandparents Mm
0: -hmm.
1: my grandfather worked a lot of way with railroads he was a Pullman porter i believe for a very short time he went on to do a railway negotiation in east africa so i love i love trains i don't know much about trains but i love trains i love i love i, I especially love making a really gourmet lunch and bringing the you other know, the train <laughs> and having like a really elegant white napkin to put on my on my um table several times i've taken the route to savannah and several times the train is either broken down or been to really late or I had to stop for hours. I had the best life ever when I brought this really elegant lunch with me in this huge uh, insulated bag. And everybody else is starving because the train didn't get them home at the right time. And I'm sitting there, you know, ripping out my beautiful lunch, my dinner and lunch. Oh, I was a sight to see but i think it's the you know it's going especially when you go on the, the the late summer and early fall mm-hmm. you know you go through and you see the different towns and the train always the train goes through richmond and always passes over the devil's half acre and i always remember to stop and give thanks and offer blessings that was where richmond where the um domestic slave trade took place the, the you know Acres of warehouses and auction blocks where my own ancestors were, and then you go into North Carolina and you go right across where the Bellamy, one of the Bellamy plantations was, you know, in um, Northampton and in, in Nash, and Bertie counties, and you see the cotton fields. You know, tobacco, then cotton, tobacco, then cotton, tobacco, then cotton, and then somewhere around. You know, the middle of South Carolina, you start to see Spanish moss. Like before, it was nowhere. Then and now it's everywhere, and you you smell paper mill. There's a lot of paper mill. It's, it's an awful smell, which is not. It is not smell. Nothing about paper mill smell, but paper mill from from Charleston, Savannah, and you know, it's just being reminded of of who I come from and where I come from, and who I am. mm Hmm right within the boundaries of my, my own country and knowing further where, the, where, you know, things come from before that. Going, you know, that's the big deal. And I had the privilege of, of taking a trip to San Francisco for work. And I chose to go with a friend across country.
0: That's the best.
1: Yes. And I went from DC to Chicago and from Chicago to Emeryville, which is basically the Bay Area. mm mm-hmm. And seeing the the Rocky Mountains and you know, the area of the canyon and, and all that stuff at sunrise and all that, it's beautiful. And um, you know, not the easiest thing to do because you feel like a milkshake for three days. <laughs> you know, you just you know, there's no there's no still. Yeah. But yeah, I do miss that. The plain thing, I don't know. Apart from the fact that i I did a lot of first class travel or you know or business class from from West Africa, which is especially on Air France, especially the best, and I gotta say you know somebody may be like, "Why you got to do all that? you're gonna sleep No, I'm not if I get to that first class section and I get to put my chair back, praise God mhm you know this these are these are serious trips, you know your shoes get wrecked. <laughs> West Africa, you know, you wear these soft. I wear, I, you know, I have these flat, horrifying feet, and I just can't. I just don't have arches, so I have to like really, you know, have the most plain Jane, basic shoes. And I buy brand new shoes, and by the time I get back, I gotta throw them away.
0: Oh my gosh!
1: <laughs> you know, because the 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 broken glass and the rocks and the and the detritus the and everything else like rips your shoes apart. You know, it's serious. And that's sand. That sand is like sandpaper. But I mean, I say all this to you that it's its just the... It's hard. It's really difficult when you've just begun this chase. Mm-hmm. And then you have to cool your heels because you, you got to keep yourself and other people safe.
0: Yep. Absolutely. And, you know, I've... I am no Oracle, but... I don't expect to f- personally feel safe anyway doing any kind of traveling or anything like that for another year. Right. It's, it's going to be January 2022 before I feel remotely safe Agreed. doing that kind of thing. And, you know, I had my little pilgrimage to the Family History Library in, in Salt Lake planned because I've never been there before. And I was all psyched to do it. And that was supposed to be this past May. And that obviously um. didn't happen. So I look forward to that travel too. But has this time and the reflection and the loss and all of the things that we've all gone through and that you've gone through individually, has that informed anything about how you might be approaching your work differently going forward, do you think?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm trying to work out my seven C's for 2021, one of which is Connect. Mm-hmm. I really, I was in a shell shock most of last year. And I did, you know, some of my friends have been like changing their bodies and changing habits. And I just, I'm not that introverted. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now they have that skill they can they can really go in and I, you have to be able to go in to do a lot of this self work mm-hmm now I'm going to do it between now and the and in the fall when I think we'll sort of normalize. We won't be perfect, but we're going to normalize, and I think that you're right it's going to take another year yeah, but having said that i I want to I, one of the words I see words is confront mm-hmm and really began to knock some of these things out that I think that are some major life points that I need to work out with this with this project. Yeah, I'm working on Kosher Soul right now, which is a different project for The Cooking Gene, where they're both kind of centered in food and food memoir and my own journey. I love, the way that you, I love the way that you frame The Cooking Gene as a life and the lives that led into that life. But I, I really, now is my time, the next uh, at least seven, eight months to really um, figure out what I'm going to do day by day to be better and to use this work for the betterment of the world.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. I've already had a lot of experience with that, but I really want to codify it. Right. I really want to, I want to, I really want to figure out my own recipe so that I can, I can do this. I mean, I didn't realize how vulnerable I was making myself by being under my own microscope. You know, the oh, genetics yeah. and everything else, I mean, with the showing large parts of my family story to the, to the world, another kind of vulnerability and openness. And sometimes you get stuff for it. Sometimes you don't. So it's, so for me right now, it's about going on like a little vision quest, figuring out my stuff. I mean, we could do that any time. But the fact of the matter is, is that I'm really used to running around, running my mouth and being the life of the party, and I'm not right now. Mm-hmm. And I need to confront my own internal issues and things I need to do for myself, my physical, mental, spiritual health. I need to read, you know, more of these books I have behind me, <laughs> and below me, and above me, and around me. I have over uh, four thousand books. You're talking so, to
0: a publisher's kid, so I completely understand. Heard. And
1: I, <laughs> I, I just, I just want to get myself together so that when the world is normal-ish, I'm ready for it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I'm ready to bring this story to them once again in different form, but also to bring new stories. It's very cliche to say food brings us all together, to the table, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I want to move beyond that cliche. If that, that's my homework assignment.
0: You're putting on your own mask before helping others. I'm going to be super trite, okay? You're putting on your own mask before you're helping others. And it seems like this is... I'm writing my own recipe.
1: Ah, yes.
0: And I think that's a a really healthy place to be. A healthy place to come from. You're a strong voice for so many people, you know? I mean, hey, anybody out there, if you don't yet, follow Michael on Twitter. Oh, my gosh. I just... (laughs) Your, your Twitter feed is just life to me in so many different ways. You know, it is so much fun. And I know that you you do put yourself out there in, in all the aspects of yourself and that that must be a place that gets attacked. And that can be a hard place to be. I mean, I've seen it happen, yeah. certainly in real time on Twitter, but you know, I value that and I thank you for that because when you do that, you give other people strength and you give other people permission to do that. And that's an amazing gift to be able to give people.
1: Thank you so much.
0: It really, really
1: is. I appreciate that. Is there anything else that's on your mind? Yeah, I really want people to use this time to start to really record, do interviews about food in their family and recipes and Get people on camera, make records or record them, audio, video, focus on the hands, not on the face.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Really sort of create a personal or family archive of recipes and food culture and know that it's not just about the food, it's about the journey that those same folks took from pot to pot and plate to plate. That's so critical. And it's also a big part of genealogical research. You know, I, I, I watched the Christleys. Uh, <laughs> because it's one of my guilty pleasures and they had an episode where the mit one of the sons had to do a family history project and he had to do a family recipe and Todd Chrisley interjects with with a snarl what is that what does food have to do with history and I'm just like you know uh everything absolutely everything the section
0: on the uh on the podcast uh I have uh periodic episodes called the family cookbook, for those of you who do not know about it, in which I frequently end up discussing my own family's cookbook, because I can't seem to get people to come on and do it with me. <laughs> and we talk about a recipe and who made it and why they made it and where it came from. And then I read out the recipe. And there is value in that And there's genealogical value in that, because it tells you what they had on hand, and what was important, and where they got it from. And to lose those kinds of things, you know, that's some of the first stuff we lose. But it's, and, in a way, it is the key that unlocks so much of what we need to know.
1: And it's also like, you know, what? We get how many generations? We get three generations. Mm-hmm. To often lose a lot. Yeah. And so that's why we have to be really conscientious and, and, and aware.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And take people, events and artifacts and material culture for granted because it ain't going to be found in a book 500 years from now.
0: Absolutely true. And if you want your family to be remembered, if you think your people are important, but your people aren't in books, that's on you, folks. You know, that's Mm -hmm. on us. That's on us. We're the ones who can do that. If we're not using all that technology that's at our disposal, that's on us. Well, I appreciate you so much. And I thank you so much for doing this with me, Michael. I'm so psyched that we finally got ourselves together. Thank you a thousand times over for coming and being with us. And tell, tell us where we can find you and your work online.
1: Um, If you want, uh guys, please, please buy this by the cooking gene. It's been successful. But the reason why I say keep going, because That's, you know, I've gone to Africa, but I've also taken people with me every single time. I've paid for people to go who could otherwise not go. I literally take my earnings and reinvest them into making sure that fellow chefs who have always wanted to go to Africa to reconnect can go. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Order through your independent local bookstore first. But if that doesn't work for you, Barnes & Noble, Amazon work just fine. Mm -hmm. Um, Please try to support also bookstores that are owned by people of color. In addition to that, you can find me at Kosher Soul on Twitter. Um, thank you, Carolyn, for the, for the gleaming recommendation. <laughs> at Kosher Soul on Twitter. And also The Cooking Gene on Instagram. So, um, yeah. Afro Culinary is my blog. Today is actually the 10-year anniversary. I didn't know it until someone pointed out it to me. <laughs> but, yeah, I'm, I'm all over the place. I love followers. Good.
0: All right. So everybody needs to do this now. And if you're in Australia, which there's a very good chance you are, we have a lot of listeners in Australia, a lot of listeners in Canada. Uh, most of our listeners are in the United States, but then we've also got a lot of European listeners and uh, it doesn't, doesn't matter. Where you them. are. <laughs> That's right. It's online. You can find it. So, so be there. Thank you again so much, Michael.
1: Thank you, Carolyn. I really appreciate this.
0: You bet. I told you it would be worth the wait. I told you. Even though now, in late May of 2021, as the Centers for Disease Control in the United States say that it's okay to go out without a mask in some places if you are fully vaccinated and vaccinations are allowed for children as well as for adults, our culture has changed. We are much more accustomed to using Zoom and other products like it in order to have business meetings, seminars, or to attend classes. Families have used Zoom to stay in touch over the past year, with new babies being born and meeting their grandparents for the first time over internet video technology. I think that Michael's final ideas are correct. Even though over five months have passed since he said that, it's still time, and it always will be time, to record the stories and the recipes of those who came before us. We need to keep speaking with our elders. We need to keep talking about our ancestors. Their food is their story, and thus, it is our story. If we lose this time, we lose generations of information. In addition to following Michael at Kosher Soul on Twitter and at The Cooking Gene on Instagram, in addition to his blog, afroculinaria.com, and his book, The Cooking Gene, Michael published a book this past winter through the University of North Carolina Press called Rice, one in a series called Savor the South. It, too, is available on Amazon as well as at the UNC Press website and at online bookstores elsewhere. There are even some great interviews with Michael about Rice on YouTube, and I recommend them highly. Please support the podcast and my ongoing work in reparational genealogy at patreon.com slash ancestorsalive, where we hold monthly polls that yield swag for supporters. You can follow me on Twitter at Ancestors Alive, and at FPPP Podcast on Instagram at FPPP Podcast. And you can always check out my website at AncestorsAlive.com. If you're new to the podcast, please listen to back episodes, starting with the first and working forward. You need the order. It's a lifestyle. And what do I always say? Do your research. Don't be a Jeffrey. Record those family recipes. And above all, expect surprises.